Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bonjour and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, Dan Brown told us all about the Opus Day, and we also went to Sister Sandrine at the Saint-Sulpice, and she told us all about Opus Day. So we're very all on the same page in regards to our knowledge of Opus Day. The Bishop of Opus Day, he's flying on a plane and making calls. And also Robert Langdon is being full-on interrogated at the Louvre. He doesn't know it yet. He just thinks he's there to provide some info about pentacles drawn on people's chests, but not the case. They think he's the number one suspect. And also Jacques Sunier, the curator, he has written in invisible ink codes on the ground on the famous parquet floor of the Louvre. And we start chapter eight with Langdon not being able to tear his eyes away from the purple text, which is scrawled across the parquet floor. So the message reads, 13321118 okay we'll we'll figure out what that means eventually but essentially it's just numbers and then o draconian devil o lame saint and so langdon he goes even though i don't have the slightest idea what it means he now understands fasha's instinct that the pentacle had something to do with devil worship because of the line o draconian devil it's like okay yeah he read devil and he thought devil but, oh, it's a Dan Brown book, so he's really got to explain that for us even further. Sonier had left a literal reference to the devil. So, of course, Fash would think there's something to do with the devil. Yes. Fash's instincts are now clear. And also, I don't know if we should call it an instinct when he's literally just reading. It's not like he had a hunch or anything. He just read the word devil and said, oh, this is about the devil. And so Fash says, our cryptographers are already working on the numeric cipher. We believe these numbers may be the key to who killed him. Maybe a telephone exchange or some kind of social ID. Do the numbers have any meaning to you? Mate, like, okay, Fash, if he were murdered, why would he just write down a bunch of numbers? Now, I know from having read this book and seen the movie and that, I think he also writes PS find Robert Langdon or something like that. And Fash has wiped that message off, right? So Fash just thinks like, oh, Robert Langdon did it. Why would... Why would he preface his accusation that Robert Langdon killed him with a bunch of numbers and a couple of quotes about the devil that don't make a lick of sense? 
oh, these, these are clues to who killed him. Or he could have just written down who killed him. And Langdon, he's looking at the numbers trying to think. And he goes, it would take me hours to extract any symbolic meaning. If Sonier had even intended any. Which is even more ridiculous. Like he obviously didn't leave it for shits and giggles. But like he didn't just scroll random numbers on the floor. Like Langdon's like, oh, he probably doesn't even mean anything. He just wrote random numbers. Like why? He's dying? Why would he do that? So Fash says, you alleged earlier that Sonier's actions here were all in an effort to send some sort of message, goddess worship or something in that vein. How does this message fit in? And he's thinking, doesn't fit in, beats me. And then he repeats it and it's, you know, oh, draconian devil, oh, lame saint. What's interesting to me is that both of the O's are spelled differently. So the first one is just a letter O and the second time it's used, it's an OH. So in my mind, it's kind of obvious that it's an anagram, right? Like, why would you spell that differently unless you wanted one more H or one less H? Also, it's written in English instead of French. So, I mean, there's another clue. And so Fash, he's just trying to like prod Langdon being like, it seems like it's some sort of accusation. Don't you think so? And Langdon, he's like, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. An accusation against his murderer. Sure. Why not? And so Fash is like, okay, Langdon, um, what do you think the most strange part of this is? And it's like, okay, it's a dead man in the Louvre who's done this to himself. He's taken all his clothes off. He's smeared a pentacle in his own blood onto his body. He's spread eagled himself. And he's also scribbled a little code and a couple of quotes of fake Shakespeare. And, and now Fash is like, so what's the craziest part of this, huh? Like, it's all fucking crazy, Fash. I don't know what you want Robert to say. And so Robert says, well, the word draconian. <laughs> so he's going to zero in on the choice of word draconian. He's like, that's really odd. Draco was a ruthless 7th century BC politician, which is kind of unlikely to be someone's dying thought. And he says, draconian devil <laughs> seems an odd choice of vocab. Like, yeah, that's the craziest thing, Robert. And Fash is getting pissed off. He's like, draconian. He's like, oh my God. Sonia's choice of vocab hardly seems the primary issue here. And Langdon's like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Blah, blah, sacred, feminine, blah, blah. And Fash is like, oh my God, he wrote it in English, dipshit. He lived in Paris, he's French, and yet he wrote this in English. And he's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Wow, crazy. You're crazy, girl. And so he shrugs. He's like, I don't know. (laughs) And Fash is like, okay, so back to the devil worship. Like, what's going on here? Do you really think that the devil's got nothing to do with it? Because he said the word devil. And Fash says, well, maybe this will help clarify things. And he expands the black light. So now that the black light beam (laughs) spills out on a wider angle. And to Langdon's amazement, a rudimentary circle glowed around the curator's body. The curator! So Sonia had laid down and swung the pen around himself to draw a circle. And so then he's like, oh, it's the Vitruvian man, obviously. Sunier had created a life-sized replica of Leonardo da Vinci's most famous sketch. And also back on the anagram thing. So, O Draconian Devil, anagram for Leonardo da Vinci. O Lame Saint, anagram for the Mona Lisa, right? Why he couldn't have just written Leonardo da Vinci, the Mona Lisa next to his body? Like, I mean... (laughs) And then also he's drawn the Vitruvian man. So we've already got the Da Vinci connection. So one of them feels unnecessary, but now we've got to get the history lesson about Da Vinci. 
Considered the most anatomically correct drawing of its day, Da Vinci's The Vitruvian Man had become a modern-day icon of culture, appearing on posters, mouse pads, and t-shirts around the world. You know what? I've never seen someone wearing a Vitruvian Man t-shirt. I'm sure it exists, but it's not something I see on a day-to-day basis. And he says the celebrated sketch, remember, because it always has to be famous and celebrated, the celebrated sketch consisted of a perfect circle in which was inscribed a nude male, his arms and legs outstretched in a naked spread eagle. Yet we got it. And so then he feels a shudder of amazement. The clarity of Sonier's intentions could not be denied. Well, okay. In his final moments of life, the curator, the curator, we all know his job, he's a curator. He had stripped off his clothing and arranged his body in a clear image of the... Oh my God, are we just repeating this? In a clear image of Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. How many times is he going to say this? The circle had been the missing critical element, a feminine symbol of protection. The circle around the naked man's body complemented da Vinci's intended message, male and female harmony. (sighs) Okay, the circle was finally the female symbol that we needed this whole time. He drew a pentacle on his chest. Wasn't that the female symbol? Wasn't that the divine sacred feminine? The divine goddess or whatever? I mean, I feel like he's just doubling down. He's done the Da Vinci reference. He's done the sacred feminine reference. And he's like, you know what? I'll just draw a circle around me for shits and gigs. And so then Fash says, Mr. Langdon, certainly a man like yourself is aware that Leonardo Da Vinci had a tendency toward the darker arts. And so then we get a history on Leonardo da Vinci's dark arts, devil worship, conspiracy theories. But Langdon, (laughs) come on, God, he says, Langdon was surprised by Fash's knowledge of da Vinci. And it certainly went a long way toward explaining the captain's suspicions about devil worship. He's like, oh, that explains it. He knows da Vinci's backstory and that's why he suspects devil worship. No, he suspects devil worship because of the pentacle on his chest and the fact that he wrote devil on the floor next to him. I don't think he needs any other little tips or hints pointing towards devil worship. Oh, that explains it. Oh, Fash knows who Da Vinci is. Why is he surprised about Fash's knowledge of Da Vinci? It's not like he's an obscure person. They're in a museum filled with Da Vinci's. Fash is super religious. Da Vinci painted a lot of religious crap. Like, I mean, uh, oh, wow, I'm surprised that this smart French man knows about art and artists. That's so crazy. Wow. Crazy. And then Dan Brown tells us Da Vinci had always been an awkward subject for historians. Like, okay, why so? Well, he says, despite the visionary's genius, he was a flamboyant homosexual. Like, okay. All right. You're outing him, first of all. But like, why are you lumping that in with it being an awkward subject for historians? And saying, despite his genius, he was a flaming homo. Despite all that, he took it up the butt. I mean, why is that necessary? Why are we outing Da Vinci? And Dan says he was also a worshipper of nature's divine order. So what with being a flaming mo and appreciating nature's divinity, he was placed in a perpetual state of sin against God. Like, okay, um, dial it back a bit, Dan Brown. And then he goes on, moreover, the artist's eerie eccentricities projected an admittedly demonic aura. So we're just linking him being a flaming homo to a a demonic aura. Oh, how awkward for historians. I feel so sorry for historians who have to explain to their students 
that this guy who painted paintings, he painted a picture of a a gal with a smirk on her face. He's actually gay. Like, yeah, everyone who's ever adored an image of a woman is gay, pretty much. He was the first little fanboy for a female diva. Mona Lisa was the olden times Lady Gaga. How awkward for historians to have to out Da Vinci. And it's like, Dan, I hate to tell you, but I'm pretty sure everyone was gay back then. Gay people existed. Who would have thought? Caravaggio, huge homo. Botticelli, liked it up the Butticelli, if you know what I mean. They were all homos. All of the Ninja Turtles were gay. If a Ninja Turtle was named in your honor, hands down, I can gold star guarantee that you were a gay person. And then he goes on to say that even Da Vinci's enormous output of breathtaking Christian art only furthered the artist's reputation for spiritual hypocrisy because he accepted money in exchange for painting artworks of religious value. Da Vinci painted Christian themes not as an expression of his own beliefs, but rather as a commercial venture, a means of funding a lavish lifestyle. Like, oh, how dare he? How dare he make a living off of his talent? Why are we coming for Da Vinci? And Dan also says that Da Vinci hid a few little symbols and little pranks into his artwork, just to like stiff it to the church. Good for him. And so Langdon says, well, I understand your concerns, Fash, but Da Vinci never really practiced any dark arts. He was a spiritual man, but he was obviously one in constant conflict with the church because of his flamboyant homosexuality. And then Langdon must like, just, you know, get lost in thought or something. Cause Fash is like, yeah, what, what, what do you want to say? Spit it out. This is an interrogation. And Langdon says, well, I was just thinking, Sonia shared a lot of spiritual ideologies with Da Vinci, including a concern over the church's elimination of the sacred feminine from modern religion. Maybe by imitating a famous Da Vinci drawing, Sonia was simply echoing some of their shared frustrations with the modern church's demonization of the goddess. Um, what the fuck are you talking about? He could have said that in all of his books. He could have written that as a Facebook status and got on with his day. He didn't need to write it in blood while he was dying from a murder. What is Langdon thinking? Like, oh, this guy just got murdered. And he's like, I've just got to get it off my chest. I've just got to write it out in blood and in invisible ink that I think the church should go easy on being sexist because women are sacred. It's like, okay, I agree with you, but I don't know why that's your last dying thought. When again, as we've already covered, you could have pointed to your murder. He could have hastily scribbled a will on the parquet floor. Just being like, leave all of my nice stuff to my granddaughter or my niece or whatever. She's coming. That's a deep tease, but a new character is coming. But no, Langdon's like, yeah, he must have just done it as like a bit of a fuck you to the church because of the divine feminine, blah, blah, blah. Hashtag Da Vinci was right. And Fash is like, what? He was expressing disappointment. That, that doesn't sound right. And Langdon's like, well, Captain, you asked for my instincts as to what Sonia is trying to stay here. So that's just what I'm giving you. Like, okay. And Fash is like, what? Like, th- this is an indictment of the church? Mr. Langdon, I've seen a lot of death in my work. And let me tell you something. When a man is murdered by another man, I do not believe his final thoughts are to write an obscure spiritual statement that no one will understand. Hey, I'm on your side there, Fash. You're talking sense. No bullshit with the bull. He says, I think he's only thinking about one thing, vengeance. And Langdon's like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And he's like, uh-uh, doesn't it? And Langdon says, no, it doesn't. You told me Sonia was attacked in his office by someone he had invited in. So it seems reasonable to conclude that the curator knew his attacker. 
And Fash is like, you've fallen into my trap. He's like, go on. And Langdon says, so if Sonia knew the person who killed him, what kind of indictment is this? Numeric codes, lame saints, draconian devils, pentacles on his stomach. It's too cryptic. And then Fash is like, well, you do have a point there. Like, yes. And Langdon says, I think if he wanted you to know who killed him, he'd just write down somebody's name. And Fash is like, gotcha. And then we cut to Lieutenant Colette, who is listening in on the recording device. And he's thinking, God, he's good. He's thinking, I am witnessing the work of a master. That Fash, oh, he's good at his job, isn't he? Colette thinks, oh, this delicate art. It's a lost skill in modern law enforcement. One that required exceptional poise under pressure. Is it a lost skill? I think, you know, interrogations are quite common. He says, few men possess the necessary sang-froid for this kind of operation, but Fash was born for it. I don't know, it doesn't seem that hard. Jake Peralta on Brooklyn Nine-Nine does it all the time and he's a dummy. And so Colette doesn't really know why Fash is so sure that Robert did it, but he trusts him. Because apparently Fash's intuition is almost supernatural at times and that God whispers in his ear. Which he then uses as a segue to go on and on and on about how Fash is a religious person. We already know this from the crucifix jamada that he wears, but all right, let's get the backstory. Apparently, Fash goes to mass and confession with really regular regularity, far more than the requisite holiday attendance. (laughs) When the Pope visited Paris a few years back, Fash had used all his muscle to obtain the honour of an audience. That's a big deal. A photo with Fash with the Pope now hung in his office, and the agents secretly called it the Papal Bull. Which, uh, the people in his office are pretty lame, aren't they? Like, imagine just creating a nickname for your boss's photo with the Pope. Like, of all the things to make fun of and call it the papal bull, like, no, not that clever. And Colette found it ironic that one of Fash's rare popular public stances in recent years, everything's popular, had been his outspoken reaction to the Catholic pedophilia scandal in recent years. You know, everything's recent. So Fash apparently had said, these priests should be hanged twice, once for their crimes against children, and once for shaming the good name of the Catholic Church. And Colette's like, it's kind of ironic that he was a bit more angry about shaming the Catholic Church rather than the kids. And I don't know if that's the true meaning of irony, but okay, it gives us a bit of insight into Fash as a person. And so then Colette also reveals that Langdon's being GPS tracked. I don't know why, considering he's in a locked room in the Grand Gallery with a, you know, an iron gate that's famously down but he's also monitoring the little red dot. And he says Fash was keeping his prey on a very tight leash tonight. Wisely so. Robert Langdon had proven himself one cool customer. And has he? I mean, when he walked in, he was having a panic attack in the elevator. He was walking past a Caravaggio and he was freaking out about why it was on the ground. I don't think he's been that much of a cool cat. But anyway, that's the end of the chapter. We then go to chapter nine. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we start chapter nine and we, we find out that to ensure his conversation with Mr. Langdon would not be interrupted, Bezu Fash had turned off his cellular phone. I'm like, okay, yeah, seems reasonable. Then he says, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it was an expensive model equipped with a two-way radio feature, which contrary to his orders was now being used by one of his agents to page him. Wow. Okay. What technology is this? Because I don't, I don't think that exists in modern times, does it? A phone that's also, also a two-way radio. So even when the phone's turned off, the two-way radio still works. Okay. So presumably he's aware of that function of the cellular phone. He must use it as a two-way radio from time to time. So even though he wants to ensure that his conversation would not be interrupted so much so that he turns off the phone, he still leaves it in his pocket knowing that his phone can also be transformed into a walkie-talkie. What is this technology? So the walkie-talkie's going crackling and someone says, Captain, And he's like, oh my God. And he says to Langdon, he's like, one moment. And he's like, yeah, what? He goes, we, which translates to, yeah, what in English. And so apparently he gets told that someone from the Department of Cryptography is arriving. The Department of Cryptography. How busy is that department? Like, do you think it's just a team of 20 people sitting in the Department of Cryptography at the French municipality building or something. And they're just like twiddling their thumbs being like, God, is anyone going to get murdered with a really weird cryptex soon or what? Like I know code breakers exist for national security, blah, 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 but they've got a whole department of cryptography. What are they doing all day? What's their nine to five like? And Fash is like, oh good. Despite the lousy timing, this was probably good news. And he thinks maybe someone from the cryptography department could tell him what the hell Sonier was trying to say. Even though he's pretty confident Langdon did it, he's like, I'd still like to know that what, what's going on with those numbers. Still be nice to tick that off my list. And Fash is like, yeah, I'm pretty busy. Get the cryptographer to wait at the command post and I'll speak to him when I'm done. Okay, casual sexism. 
And then the voice says, her, it's Agent Nouveau. And then instead of casual sexism, we get some full-blown sexism because we hear about this agent, Sophie Nouveau, one of the DCPJ's biggest mistakes, fash things. She's a young Parisian déchiffreuse, whatever that is, who had studied cryptography in England at the Royal Holloway. She had been foisted on Fash two years ago as part of the ministry's attempt to incorporate more women into the police force. The ministry's ongoing foray into political correctness, Fash argued, was weakening the department. Women not only lacked the physicality necessary for police work, but their mere presence posed a dangerous distraction to the men in the field. What the fuck? That's a major red flag. Like, I know this is sort of being filtered through Fush's POV, but it does seem like the narrator's like, yep, that's the truth, and just rolling with it instead of calling out the sexism for what it is. At 32 years old, she had a dogged determination that bordered on obstinate. Her eager espousal of Britain's new cryptologic methodology continually exasperated the veteran French cryptographers above her. Yeah, it's a big department, the Department of Cryptography. And by far the most troubling to Fash was the inescapable universal truth that in an office of middle-aged men, an attractive young woman always drew eyes away from the work at hand. What the fuck? Like, what's Dan Brown trying to do here? Is he trying to like do the pride and prejudice, it's a truth universally acknowledged type thing, but then, but then saying something horrible? The inescapable universal truth that an attractive young woman always drew eyes away from the work at hand. Like, I don't know if that is an inescapable universal truth. How ridiculous. And the agent, he's like, well, Agent Nouveau is on her way. Sorry. And Fash is like, what the fuck? No, she's going to distract me from the crime scene. She's too pretty to be near the dead body. Langdon's looking at Fash and thinks, oh my God, is he suffering a stroke? Because he is angry. And so then the young woman approaches and she says, excusez-moi, monsieur. And then we get Dan Brown's description of her. Which, which is back to the casual sexism. We've left the rampant hardcore sexism and now we're back to the casual sexism. So she was moving down the corridor toward them with long fluid strikes, a haunting certainty to her gait. What does that mean? A haunting certainty to her gait. Does that just mean she's walking confidently? But why is it haunting? What does it mean? Dressed casually in a knee-length cream-coloured Irish sweater over black leggings, (laughs) she was attractive and looked to be about 30. Well, we already know her age. She's 32. We've been told. Uh, (sighs) Her thick burgundy hair fell unstyled to her shoulders, framing the warmth of her face. And get this, unlike the waifish cookie-cutter blondes that adorned Harvard dorm room walls, this woman was healthy with an unembellished beauty and genuineness, genuineness, that radiated a striking personal confidence. Also, like, is he just implying that, oh, everyone in Harvard is a boy and they're all sex mad and love cookie cutter blondes, but they're not healthy blondes. At least this person, she's healthy. What does that mean? Does that just mean she's got some meat on her bones? Like, what? I'm not comfortable with this description. And so then she introduces herself. Oh God, here we go. Monsieur Langdon, I am Agent Nouveau from DCPJ's cryptology department. Yeah, we know. And so then he shakes her soft palm and felt himself momentarily fixed in her strong gaze. Her eyes were olive green, incisive 
and clear. Like, have we ever gotten this much description about a man? Like, we know Langdon's got a sexy voice. And even though he's a symbologist, he's keeping it tight. We know Fash is, I don't know, a, a bit built like a bull. And yeah, we hear, we hear about Silas's physicality quite a bit. But this is a lot. We're getting eye colour. We're getting whether or not her hair is styled. We're hearing about her knee-length cream-coloured Irish sweater over black leggings. What's an Irish sweater? And her soft palms? What? Oh, ugh. And so Fash is like, what the fuck are you doing, toots? And she's like, I tried to phone you, but your cell phone was turned off. And yet it wasn't because it still receives walkie-talkie signal. And he's like, yeah, I turned it off for a reason because I didn't want to be interrupted. Even though I still kept it in my pocket knowing that it's a two-way radio. And she says, well, I've deciphered the numeric codes are too bad. And she goes, oh, but before I explain, I have an urgent message for Mr. Langdon. And Fash is like, what? Why would you have a message for Langdon? And she says, yeah, Langdon, you need to contact the US embassy. They have a message for you from the States. And like, okay, that sounds like bullshit. It's clearly bullshit. And Fash, who is someone that has huge intuition, he's skilled in the police force skills that no one else ever has these days. He always trusts his gut. It's like God's whispering in his ears, little hunches. He's like, huh, sounds legit. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And even Langdon's thinking, why would the US embassy talk to the Department of Cryptography to pass a message on to me. That's weird. And she's like, yeah, apparently they um, called the hotel and the concierge, the chatty concierge told them that Mr. Langdon had been collected by a DCPJ agent, which we also know would be false because the concierge agent, as we remember, refused to tell Langdon that it was a DCPJ agent who was walking towards his door. And so then Sophie, she's like, yeah, so I, um, uh, I called the DCPJ switchboard in an attempt to contact you, Fash. And they had a message waiting for Mr. Langdon. So they just asked me if I could pass it along, if I got through to you, you know, like just, just as the switchboard does, just passing messages to random people, no security protocols at the DCPJ. And Fash is at least looking confused. If, if he was accepting this wholeheartedly, I'd be very concerned for his police skills. But she goes, oh, here you go. Here's a little um, piece of paper for you, Mr. Langdon. This is the number for your embassy's messaging service. Oh my, like, seriously. Her saying it out loud, how is she not thinking, this is bullshit. Like, how is anyone believing this? The embassy gave a number for their messaging service. Why wouldn't he just call the embassy? The American embassy in France is just running off of an old answering machine. And she's like, well, you need to make the call. Do that while I'm talking to Captain Fash. And Langdon's like, well, I need a phone. And Fash is like, here, use my phone. And he's like, okay. And so then he goes and rings the number that's on the piece of paper. And Langdon is, I believe, the biggest idiot ever. Because then he's like expecting to hear an embassy operator. But then he finds himself listening to Sophie's answering machine. Because she's like, hey, I'm Sophie. I'm not available to get to the phone right now, but leave a message in French. And he yells out, like, have we not established that she's trying to do something shady and get a message to him? And he's like, oh, hey, Sophie, Sophie. He's like shouting across the grand gallery, being like, I think you've given me the wrong number. Something's fishy. And she's like, no, no, that's the right number. And he's like, yeah, no, it's not actually. um, It sounds like it's your living room. And she's like, the embassy has an automated message system. You have to dial an access code to pick up your messages. And he's like, 
yeah, but and she's like, look at the fucking piece of paper and look at the code that I gave you and put the code into the thing. For fuck's sake, shut the fuck up. And he's like, what's that? And she's like, gives him a look. Her green eyes send a crystal clear message. Don't ask questions, just do it. And he's like, all right, well, I'll, I guess I'll just play the message. And he still hasn't figured it out yet though. It goes, you have one new message. And he thinks, huh, this is her messages. He goes, I'm picking up this woman's messages. And then he's got to hear the tape rewind for it to play the message. Like, oh, talk about the olden days. And so then he listens to the message play and he's like, oh my God, it's Sophie's voice on her answering machine. That is so weird. Wow. Crazy. And then he's like, probably, probably about to shout out to a man like, hey, Soph, Soph, this is still your answering machine, doll. And then the voice kicks in. And so the message is, Mr. Langdon, do not react to this message. Just listen calmly. You are in danger right now. Follow my directions very closely. And that's the end of the chapter. And then we go to chapter 10 and we're back with Silas. He's on his way to Saint-Sulpice. He's going to pay a visit to Sister Sandrine, who we haven't touched base with for a little while. It's a slow start. Like a lot's happening, but it's taken a long time for things to happen as well. So he's outside of Saint-Sulpice and he's looking up at the beautiful church and he thinks, oh, the heathens used a house of God to conceal their keystone. How disgusting. Again, this man killed someone today. And he thinks Silas was looking forward to finding the keystone and giving it to the teacher, proper noun, capital T, so they could recover what the brotherhood had long ago stolen from the faithful. I say proper noun, capital T, because in the Maze Runner, everything's a proper noun. And I've just sort of gotten into the habit on Patreon with the coverage of the Maze Runner to just point out when something's a proper noun, which is all the time. So a little mid-episode plug, go listen to the Patreon content at patreon.com slash books, $3 a month, new episodes every Friday, blah, blah, blah. And so then he's thinking about the information or whatever he recovers will make Opus Day powerful. And he, there's nothing he wants more than a powerful church. You know, if, if I was a religious person, I'd just be happy that the church existed and like I would get a sense of community within the church perhaps and just live like a normal day-to-day life within the church community. But he's like, oh, I want my church to be so powerful. Like, isn't that a red flag in itself, Silas? Maybe you're the bad guy. Maybe you are. That's a major red flag. And so as he goes to walk into Sussulpice, he remembers his life before Opus Day had saved him. The memories haunted his soul. So then we're flashing back <laughs> to young Silas. The memories of purgatory came as they always did, like a tempest to his senses. The reek of rotting cabbage, the stench of death, human urine and feces. So you'd think that, you know, human urine and feces and and dead bodies would probably overpower the smell of rotting cabbage, but no, rotting cabbage is the first one that he mentions. Oh, the stink of rotting cabbage, it was disgusting. There was also human feces, poo, dead bodies, but oh, the cabbage, blech. Takes me back to that horrible time. So incredibly, it was the barren and forsaken land between Spain and France, Andorra, where he was shivering in his stone cell, wanting only to die, that Silas had been saved. His name was not Silas then, although he didn't recall the name his parents had given him, he had left home when he was seven. Okay, okay. Now call me crazy, but I feel like by the age of seven, you have a good idea of what your name is. And yeah, granted, there's been some traumatic incidences, but like you'd you'd remember your first name, you'd think. So his drunken father was a dock worker who was enraged by the arrival of an albino son, quote, 
and he beat his mother regularly, blaming her for the boy's embarrassing condition. One night there was a horrific fight and his mother never got up. And so then he feels guilty. He thinks that it's his fault. And so as if some kind of demon were controlling his body, he walks into the kitchen, grabs a butcher's knife, and hypnotically he moved to the bedroom where his father lay on the bed in a drunken stupor. And without a word, the boy stabbed him in the back. So I'm assuming he was sleeping on his belly because it would have been quite hard for him to stab him in the back if he was just laying in the bed on his back. It's not like Dan Brown to not include that detail. So that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So he killed his dad, as you do. He fled to the streets of Marseille, but his strange appearance made him an outcast among the other young runaways. And he was forced to live alone in the basement of a dilapidated factory, eating stolen fruit and raw fish from the dock. I am getting full on lame is act one flashbacks. And his only companions were tattered magazines he found in the trash. And so he taught himself to read by reading these magazines. Over time, he grew strong. When he was 12, wow, so he lasted five years just reading magazines in a basement. That's crazy. So when he was 12, another drifter, a girl twice his age. Okay, so she's 24, all right. Wouldn't call her a girl. I I mean, we call her a, you know, a woman or a young lady. Okay, so a girl twice his age. 24 year old, she mocked him on the streets and attempted to steal his food. So you're thinking, oh, that's a bit of a bitch move, but you know, he'll get over it. No, the girl found herself pummeled to within inches of her life. He almost killed her because she made fun of him. And then Dan Brown says, when the authorities pulled the boy off her, they gave him an ultimatum, leave Marseille or go to juvenile prison. We should be giving people ultimatums like that. Like, okay, you almost killed a girl, but she was a street rat urchin. So, you know, it's your choice. Either go to jail or just leave. Like, wow, what a choice. So then he moves down the coast to Toulon. And over time, the looks of pity on the streets turn to looks of fear. Yet not that unfounded. I mean, he did just beat someone up until they almost died. And he also killed his dad. So he's walking around being like, why are people so afraid of me? And it's like, because you're a murderer, maybe? And he says, when people pass by, he could hear them whispering to one another. They'd say, a ghost. And their eyes would be wide with fright as they stared at his white skin. And they'd say, a ghost with the eyes of a devil. And okay, like, it's 2003. Silas is what? 30, maybe late 20s, mid 30s. So this is like the 80s. And I feel like the way he's writing it, like Dan Brown's writing it as if it's Les Mis times, like it's the 1700s and that people are walking around seeing someone with albinism being like, ah, a ghost, call the exorcist. There's a ghost walking the streets of Marseille. It's like, no, it's the 80s. Aren't people just walking around in double denim and like fluoro lycra doing exercise routines? They're hula hooping. Are people not hula hooping up and down the streets? They're not like, Random Beauty and the Beast characters saying, oh, no, there's a ghost on the street. Like, what? No, it's the 80s. And he says he felt like a ghost, transparent, floating from seaport to seaport. People seemed to look right through him. No, you just told us that people stared at him and pointed and called him a ghost, a ghost with the eyes of a devil. That doesn't sound like people just looking right through him. That sounds like people are actually taking a lot of notice of him. But no, now it's a metaphor for him feeling transparent and like an actual ghost. 
And then it says, at 18 in a port town, while attempting to steal a case of cured ham from a cargo ship, he was caught by a pair of crewmen. Okay, a whole case of cured ham? That's a lot of cured ham. That would have, that would have got him through a whole season. And because everyone's beating everyone up in this 1700s France, the two sailors beat him up and they smell of beer, which triggers him and makes him think of his dad. So then he beats them up and he broke the first sailor's neck with just his bare hands. So that's another murder. And only the arrival of the police saved the second sailor from a similar fate. And of course, because this was a man that died and another man that got beat up, there's no ultimatum. Yeah, you can almost murder this girl on the street. We don't care about her. But if you come for a sailor, a male sailor, you're going to prison. So two months later in shackles, he arrived at a prison in Endora. And so all the inmates were like, ha ha ha, you're as white as a ghost. Ha ha ha, you're a ghost. That's hilarious. And then over the course of 12 years while he's in that prison, his flesh and soul withered until he knew he had become transparent. Okay, so now he's at the age of 30. So yeah, I think he's in his 30s. We must be in the 90s now. I'm I'm not too sure. But Dan Brown's still writing it like it's the 1790s. And one night, the ghost... Okay, he's now referring to Silas as the ghost. One night, the ghost awoke to the screams of other inmates. Basically, there was an earthquake and that knocked down a wall of the prison and he was able to escape. But the way Dan Brown writes it, it's a whole big thing, like it's divine intervention. So he escapes, but he must be sick or something because he's hiding out in like a train and he feels like he's dying. And then he wakes up and someone's beating him and throwing him from the train. He's always getting beaten. And so then he's wandering the outskirts of a small village, a small village that doesn't have plumbing. And everyone in that village is singing, at the end of the day, you're another day older. It's a full on lame is fantasy in 1995. And then he's passing out on the side of a road. A few days later, he comes to. The air around him smelled sweet like candles and he's getting a vision of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. The stone has been rolled aside. You are born again. And so he's fallen asleep. He's waking up. He's fallen asleep. And every time he wakes up, Jesus has a few nice words to say. And he's like, you're saved, my son. Blessed are those who follow my path. And he's like, thanks, Jesus. Then he goes back to sleep. And then... It was a scream of anguish that startled the ghost from his slumber. We're still calling him the ghost. (laughs) So his body leapt out of bed and he runs into the kitchen and there's a large man beating a smaller man again with the beating. And so without knowing why, the ghost grabbed the large man and hurled him backward against a wall. And so then that man fled, (laughs) leaving the ghost standing over the body of a young man in priest's robes. I could just call him the priest. So the priest had a badly shattered nose. So there's your hint that it's Bishop Arangarosa who was described to us as having a badly shattered nose. So the ghost carried the priest to the couch and the priest is like, oh, thanks. And he's like, do you speak Spanish? And he goes, nah, I speak French. And they're like, all right, we'll try and communicate in French. And he says, what's your name? And he goes, I don't know my name. Weirdest thing, left the house when I was seven and I just forgot my name, so I just called myself the ghost. Yeah, I'm in a third person narration right now, but I'm still referring to myself as a ghost, even though I'm not the narrator, it's just through my POV, but it's a whole big thing. Anyway, uh, what's your name? Who are you? And he says, oh, I'm Manuel Arangarosa. So we didn't really need the hint that it was Arangarosa because he's coming out and saying, I'm Arangarosa, so mystery solved. And he goes, well, where am I? And he goes, you're in Spain. And he goes, what, how'd I get here? 
And he says, someone left you on my doorstep. You were ill. I fed you. You've been here many days. So they're just really catching up. And he goes, oh, thanks. And he goes, no, I'm thankful for you. So they're just about to make out or something. And then when the ghost awoke in the morning, his world felt clearer. And he looks up at the crucifix above the bed, but Jesus isn't talking back. And he's like, oh, well, we had a good run, Jesus. But he also sees a newspaper in front of him. And so he looks at the newspaper, which is written in French. <laughs> okay. Even, I, I thought they were in Spanish. Okay, guess. And so he's reading the story in French and he's filled with fear because it told of an earthquake in the mountains that had destroyed a prison and freed many dangerous criminals. And he's like, oh, no, the priest knows who I am. I'll bugger it. He's like, oh. Just when I was on a good wicket, I'm found out. And he's like, well, I better go run. But then a voice at the door says, the book of Acts. And the ghost turned, frightened. Oh, it's just the priest. Like, yeah, of course it's just the priest. And he's smiling and his nose is in a bandage. And he says, here's a Bible. It's in French. As is the newspaper. Read Acts 16. And so he goes to Acts 16, verse 26. He gasps in shock. The ghost gasps. Because the quote from the Bible says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and all the doors fell open. And he's like, oh my God, that just happened to me. Like what a coincidence. And the priest is like, yep. And he says, from now on, my friend, if you have no other name, I shall call you Silas. Because the verse was about a prisoner called Silas who escaped. And he's like, wow, thanks. So the priest is just not going to call the cops. Like I get, you know, the forgiveness and all that stuff, but like he, he killed quite a number of people. Well, maybe only two people, but isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? And he's like, wow, I have a name, Silas. He had been given flesh. My name is Silas. You know, Silas, you weren't actually a ghost. You were always made of flesh. Um, not sure why you let the albinism really fuck with your head there, but you, you are a person. And also, if you're so grateful for this flesh that has just been given to you, maybe stop whipping it every night. And the priest said, it's time for breakfast. You will need your strength if you were to help me build this church. And then we cut to Bishop Arangarosa in the present. And remember last week how I was laughing, being like, oh my God, he's on a plane, but we haven't been given the full details of the plane. We don't know what airline he was with. Like I was surprised at the lack of detail from Dan. Well, here we go. So Dan says, 20,000 feet above the Mediterranean, Alitalia flight 1618 bounced in turbulence, causing passengers to shift nervously. So we get the flight number, we get the airline, we get how many feet they're above sea level, and we get the sea that they're above. I thought we were already, you know, leaving the Portugal coast, so we're already over land, but now we're back over the Mediterranean, so I'm unsure of the flight path, but at least we know what flight he's on. And so the bishop, he's not even noticing the turbulence. He's just thinking about the future of Opus Day, And he's worried about Silas, but he can't phone Silas because the teacher said that he's not allowed to communicate with Silas for a few weeks, which would make me suspicious, but he thinks nothing of it. So the teacher had said in English with a French accent, it is for your own safety. I am familiar enough with electronic communications to know they can be intercepted. The results could be disastrous for you. Okay, he's just talking some techno mumbo jumbo. Being like, oh, you're going to get hacked. You can't talk to Silas. But you know what? Still talk to me on a plane. That's fine. But don't make any personal calls. Seems very controlling behavior. So apparently the bishop had been super impressed with the teacher 
because he was able to get the names of the Brotherhood's four top members, the center show. And he's like, well, he's getting results, so I should trust him. And the teacher's saying, hey, Bishop, I've got it all sorted. For my plan to succeed, you must allow Silas to answer only to me for several days. The two of you can't speak. I will communicate with him through secure channels. Yep, sounds like a red flag. That's a major red flag. And he says, yeah, don't worry. I'll treat him with respect. I do this to protect your identity, Silas's identity, and my investment. So apparently, the bishop, as part of Opus Dei, is going to give 20 million euro to the teacher for whatever the teacher's doing. And the bishop's gazing out the window thinking, wow, 20 million euro. The sum was approximately the same number of US dollars. And like, okay, well, I don't know if it is. Like, seems like a kind of lazy conversion there. Oh, it's, it's the same as the US dollar. It's, just, it's practically the same. Like, I don't need to convert it for you guys. I'll tell you the exact address of Opus Dei. I'll tell you how long the Louvre is, but I'm not going to convert euros to US dollars. Yeah, Google it. But then the bishop felt a renewed confidence that the teacher and Silas would not fail. Money and faith were powerful motivators. And that's the end of the chapter. So would you believe it? We're still not cracking the Da Vinci Code yet. We got closer. We got closer. We learned that Da Vinci was a flaming homo, but we're still not there yet. But we learned a lot about Silas. Backstory on backstory on backstory. I think Dan Brown's got a bit of a method where he's like, I'll do a chapter of plot movement and then I'll put a huge chunk of historical text and Wikipedia into there, into the middle of that chapter. And then I'll go to another character, give their full backstory. Then I'll go to another character, get them to give me the backstory of some religious concept. And then I'll go back to the plot. And then I'll go back to a different character and give them all backstory. And then I'll go back to the plot. And you know what? It does work. It does propel the reader forward. I've got to give him that. Anyway, let me know your thoughts. As I mentioned in the middle of the show, head on over to Patreon and I will see you guys next week for more backstory. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. 